Hello, hello, and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. And uh, this is really, this is my favorite Useful Idiots broadcast of the year. That's our annual NFL preview show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so uh, We're going to get into all the different uh, details of this season that's about to kick off. Actually, that will have already kicked off by the time this goes on the air. Right. Uh, and Katie has a lot of thoughts a lot. on the kind of realigned uh, NFL. She's very excited that the games are actually going to happen. Uh, I know. The, I... the lack of a preseason, I think, weighed weighed pretty heavily on her shoulders. But now that now that there's there's actually things to talk about that are going to be happening on the field, from the Tampa Bay Gronkineers to you know the exciting Sam Darnold era in in, uh, in New York, this is just lots of stuff that Katie wants to get into. I feel like my life was on hold. It was. It was. So we get to get, get into all of that today. Uh, very, very briefly, we're going to talk to a guest about some, some kind of trial or something that's happening across yeah. in England. Uh, and we may, may attend to a few minor issues of politics uh, here and there. But mostly we're going to talk about football uh, and in particular the offensive line play. The set of trap plays, counter trays. Uh, she loves the pulling guard plays. So... The best um, defense, I always say, the best defense is offense. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Ball control. Anything yeah. else? Yeah. Well, I'd just like to take the mo- this moment to encourage people to, if you want to look as cool as I do holding this useful idiot's mug, you can do that. And where do they get this merch, Dan? The link will be in the description on our YouTube post for this episode, as well as on the podcast description wherever you get your podcasts there you go so there you have it no excuse so here's your homework get a mug or get a t-shirt you can get a bag i really recommend the bags because they have a pocket which i really like um this mug works really great no issues with it breaking or breaking your teeth or spilling on you um <laughs> speaking of which we're going to get to that in yeah, a we're moment, gonna get to but, yeah so uh, so when you're after you're done ordering your mug you can rate and review us on uh, itunes and subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe. Press that bell. Right. Smash that bell button and smash that I, like I button. I honestly couldn't tell you why that's important, but but I want, I want people to do it anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, all right. So lots to get to this week. Democrats suck. Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? Isn't that weird? Uh, I start, right? Yeah, with Dems for this week. Yeah. Dem- Democrats suck. So what do we have for Democrats suck? There, was this, there were a couple of things. Uh, I, I have some thoughts about this. Atlantic controversy, which feels like it's yet another thing that's kind of emanating from, you know, from whispers from Democratic partisans. But really, it's not really not so much about that. It's it's a it's a journalism story, and it's it's become a little bit it's backed up a little bit on on the Atlantic after the story came out. I actually totally believe that Trump said all those things. Yeah. Uh, but like a million of those bombshell reports in the past, uh, it. They've, it's kind of fallen apart in a few in a few places, and polls are already showing that he he's gotten he may have gotten a bump from from this one. So as has happened a little bit in the past, um, but we're not going to get into that. Yeah. I think the one I want to do is is the is the Kamala Harris vaccine story, right. and I I've gone back and forth on this a couple of times. But Dan, if we could just put a tape uh, of the interview that uh, Kamala Harris gave to Donna ba- Dana Bash on CNN State of the Union. Do you trust that in the situation where we're in now that the public health experts and the scientists will get the last word on the efficacy of a vaccine? If past is prologue, that they will not. They'll be muzzled. They'll be suppressed. They will be sidelined because he's looking at an election coming up. 
in less than 60 days. And, um, and he's grasping for whatever he can get to pretend that he has been a leader on this issue when he is not. So let's just say there's a vaccine that is approved and even distributed before the election. Would you get it? Well, I think that's going to be an issue for all of us. Um, I will say that I would not trust Donald Trump. And it would have to be okay. a credible source of information that talks about the, um, the efficacy and the, and the reliability of whatever he's talking about. I will not take his word for it. Okay. So one assumes that if a vaccine becomes available, it's going to have to actually go through the entire process of being approved uh, by the FDA. And uh, it's going to have to go through trials. And uh, the question wasn't even about Donald Trump, but it, it became about Donald Trump. I don't know. I, 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 at first, I thought, OK, I, I, I kind of get it. He's been totally unreliable on this issue. But they're going to have a hard time already getting people to take this vaccine. And isn't this exactly what Democrats have have uh, criticized Republicans about in the past or, or anti, anti-vaxxers? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think this is that she could have phrased that in a very different way. Yeah, I think I think she could have said, look, of course, you know, assuming everything is above board and assuming, you know, the information suggests that the drug is 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 uh, has gone through all the proper protocols. Of course, we'll all be happy to see it if it comes out, uh, you know, before before the election. But, you know, it, we can't just take Trump's word for whatever, you know, I mean, that, that would be one way to do it, you know, and she didn't do that. And yeah. instead, it just raises this cloud of uncertainty over whether or not you're going to take this vaccine, which is feels to me not right. I don't know. How do you feel? I think I get what you're saying, but I think she's making this point because she doesn't want to give Trump any ammo for or credit for overseeing. I'm not defending it. I'm just saying, let's look right. into why she's saying this, right? She, that's I assume that's why she's saying it, because she had just said that and I'm actually a little confused by the premise because she's saying Trump um, is basically downplaying it. Is that what she says at the very beginning? She said that he hasn't been a leader on this issue. Right. And then, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. So then Dan and Bash kind of switches it up, I think, in a way she didn't expect, which is like, well, what if there were the discovery of a vaccine under Trump? Yeah, which is a totally legit question. No, yeah, it is legit. It just it's a legit question, but it kind of like. I guess it makes sense because because Kamala is saying he's not showing leadership and Dana Bash is like, well, OK, but let's say he did something good did happen under his leadership. Right. Right. That's like the segue. Um, so it's kind of a BS answer. Right. And you should she should have said, of course. Right. We'll have to make sure, given Trump's record, that it's actually, you know, cre- you know, credible and and approved by doctors. But I guess you're right. The emphasis is a little bit off. I don't think those statements will suppress people's uh, vaccination rates. And I also don't think it was anti-vaxxer. It was more highly politicized, highly partisan because she wasn't doubting about. I mean, I guess you're right, because some anti-vaxxers are like the government is putting fluoride. into your Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. and again, imagine if the situation were reversed, right. right? And this were a Democratic president who was about to be reelected and you asked the the Republican Republican candidate, are you gonna take this vaccine if it comes out on time? And they said, I would not trust Barack Obama or I would yeah. not trust Hillary right. Clinton. Like imagine how that would play. Yeah. 
Right. And and yeah. I get it. It's Donald Trump. But uh, Donald inject bleach Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I and, and I, I totally get all of that. And I totally get him not deserving a win on all this. But it's not going to be him who's going to develop the vaccine. Right. You know what I'm saying? So and people need it. Right. So I don't know. To me, this is like an extension of the hydroxychloroquine phenomenon where it's like things that are not that are that are about science that aren't about Trump get sucked into this culture war thing and you know and suddenly we're talking about uh scientific reality as though it has some kind of partisan leaning one way or the other and uh i don't know i i think that was irresponsible uh mm. it wasn't well, it wasn't a good look uh, but what do you got well on a related note uh, uh -oh. there's this story about uh trump's response to covid uh bob woodward has this new book out and uh, I'm actually surprised that Trump was as fo as uh, candid with him as he was. Exactly. Right? Like, I don't know what's happening there. Um, we can play the audio, but let me just set it up. So reading it from CNN, play it down. Trump admits to concealing the true threat of coronavirus in new Woodward book. President Donald Trump admitted he knew weeks before the first confirmed U.S. coronavirus death that the virus was dangerous, airborne, highly contagious, and, quote, more deadly than even your strenuous flus, end quote, and that he repeatedly played it down publicly, according to legendary journalist Bob Woodward in his new book, Rage. This is deadly stuff, Trump told Woodward in, on February 7th. In a series of interviews with Woodward, Trump revealed that he had a surprising level of detail about the threat of the virus earlier than previously known. Pretty amazing, Trump told Woodward, adding that the coronavirus was maybe five times more deadly than the flu. Now let's hear the audio. Now it's turning out it's not just old people, Bob, but just today and, and yesterday some startling facts came out. It's not just old, older yeah, exactly. young people to plenty of young people. So what's going on give in me a, a moment of talking to somebody, going through this with Fauci or somebody who kind of uh, it caused a pivot in your mind because it's clear just from what's in on the public record that you went through a pivot on this to oh my god the gravity is uh almost inexplicable and unexplainable well i think bob really to be honest with sure, you sure i want you to i be. wanted to uh i wanted to always play it down i still like playing it down yes sir. because i don't want to create a panic well look first of all it it's a clear, it's a clear gotcha journalism wise yes, no, because no, no, there's no question that Trump uh, doesn't want came, to be heard saying that. Well, and also that he came out after the, that date, after the, that interview, and was saying he was he was he was definitely playing down the virus and comparing it to uh, to flus. And so this is exactly what what people were talking about when they're trying to criticize Trump for for playing down a crisis on his watch. So I, I yeah, I think it's I think it looks it's a very I mean, even by Trumpian standards, it's a pretty bad look. Yeah, it is. The, the only thing I would say I would say is that the that detail where he says I always try to play it down. That's a very unusual thing to hear from Trump's mouth about his view of how he looks at politics and strategy. Like we almost never hear him talking. Right like that about trying to manipulate the public or 
uh, he always speaks as though he's, he believes what he's saying. Uh, and that, I thought that was interesting. I don't know. You know, is, is there a, a justification for playing it down? I don't well, think he so. says, I mean, according to him, he doesn't want to create a panic, but obviously playing it down creates death. Right. Yeah, exactly. There are actually two more clips that are short. It's one minute and then 30 seconds. Can we listen to the other ones? And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus. And I think he's going to have it in good shape. But, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's uh, Indeed it goes it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things. Right. But the air. You just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more right. deadly. This is five per... You know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. And then the, the next one. So now I, I understand. Because uh, it was too early. Uh, uh, your new national security advisor, O'Brien, right. said to you on yeah. January 28th, Mr. President, this is going, this virus is going to the, be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. Do you remember that? No, no. You don't. No, I don't. No, I don't. I'm sure if he said it, you know, I'm sure he said it. Nice guy. Well, you know, what's really interesting is I got to say, it was very weird hearing him talk about the numbers like the, um, well, it was hilarious. Sorry to, to hear him talk about how it's airborne, not touch. The touch. Uh, the touch. Yeah. 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 He's so um, Borscht Belt. It's just a move. I know. Yeah. yeah. Again. A month after that February 7th interview, where he's talking about how this is worse than your strenuous flus, he was tweeting that uh, last year, 37,000 Americans died from the common flu. Uh, nothing is shut down. Life and the economy go on. Right. And there are only at this moment, there are only 546 cases with 22 deaths. Think about that. Um, again, this is a situation where he could have said something different. He could have yeah, said, of course. Yeah. he could have said, this is bad. But just to put it in perspective, we, we often lose tens of thousands of people a year to influenza. So this is an, you know, we don't want you to lose your minds, but we want you to take precautions, that kind of thing. Right. Like that, that's what he should have said. And, but instead, he, I mean, and, and it's just interesting hearing him talk about how this is his strategy of just saying, I'm going to play it down. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I don't. I don't think it's defensible because people went out. Yeah, of and, course. And, yeah. And, and, and probably really did behave like they weren't going to get infected. So, right. Uh, right. Because whatever you would have to do, the message you would have to send to get people to, to prevent a panic is a message that would encourage inappropriately reckless behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, of all the things that the real things that, that presidents do, the most important thing they do is, is, is talk to the country uh in times of crisis right uh that's like the probably the, the area where they have the most direct influence is just on on the be the behavior of people and and helping uh, tend to the national moods so when you're in the middle of a racial crisis try to find language that's healing right like i mean he's been totally inept at that and then 
with this coronavirus situation, I think he, he, he genuinely gets lost between what's politically bad for me and what I really need to do. And, uh, and I completely get that from, from the conservative point of view that, that uh, they, they'll say they were going to pin this on him anyway, but he, he just can't do what he did. I, I think this is not. Defensible. Yeah. I mean, just, he just said it. He said he downplayed it. And again, you could like a more responsible president. You could imagine them figuring out a way to not cause a moral, uh, not cause a panic, but also alert people to how dangerous it was. But he really he, there's a difference between like putting it in perspective and urging people to keep their heads while following guidelines. There's a difference between that and just downplaying it and encouraging dangerous behavior. Like that rally inside, there was really no reason to do that. Um, And have we talked about the fact that Donald Trump basically killed Herman Cain? Uh, No, we didn't talk about it because, no, we we didn't talk about it. I mean, he he basically killed Herman Cain, who I met at the RNC, so I have a special connection to him. I literally just got my photo taken with him. I have to find it. But it, what's funny is that if any Democrat had done the equivalent of what Trump did now, it's it's impossible to imagine, because honestly, you can't imagine a Democrat holding an indoors rally, blah, 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 with during Corona. But anyone who had as like the same relationship towards someone's death with someone's death that Trump had with with Kane's death, Trump would be calling that person a murderer all the time. He'd right. be like he killed he killed that man, that poor man, that poor, you know. He killed right. him. He has his death on his hands. And it's just like, I don't, that always comes into my head for some reason because, uh, and it's weird that Dems, that's another thing. I'm surprised they didn't play that one more. Yeah, because they don't care. I guess they don't care. They don't like Kane. You're right. Yeah. No, no one's, you, you can't, you can't raise money off Donald Trump killed Herman Kane. Right. Why? If only he like, joined the resistance. Yeah, exactly. What's the downside, people would say. This is the part of the thing that's baffling to me about Trump because I, I've come to totally understand what he's doing in other arenas when he says completely outrageous things or, or provocative things, or he, or he completely overpromises, yeah. or he or he or he threatens to do something that's so completely beyond the pale that people like lose their minds, uh, and then late, later you find out that he, it, it, he ends up back in some other place, and basically what he's done is he's he's politically sucking in. The extremists with one hand and then he's he's slowly clawing back support with with it's you know it's a, a, a classic persuasion technique yeah i get what he's doing but in this case you just can't do that yeah. right like there was there there's no there's no need to to play, to turn this into a political right. thing he could just he could he could have played it down in other ways and also again like he given that so many of his supporters um have been persuaded understandably sometimes um that the media you know by fake news it's hard you know he he has a really powerful voice for these people uh in ways that others don't in other words like in ways that politicians who haven't built their entire career around the media being fake so yeah it's really scary did did like woodward slip him some kind of something in his drink yeah you give him or you give him some ripnol or something yeah Yeah. it's so weird like i don't know why he was so open about it very Um, very interesting yeah uh all right so that was those were those were bad Um, really bad what what do we have for okay so i'm up next and uh isn't that terrible uh we're gonna we're gonna move away from the whole necrophilia disembodied penis access this week which um, is against my protests yeah yeah 
Um, and uh, Dan, if we could look at the uh, story that's called Dentists Are Seeing an Epidemic of Cracked Teeth, comma, what's going on? So this is a, uh, a dentist who's doing a column and it starts off with a, a dentist is being asked about her practice and, and she says um, that she's busier than ever, that she's seen more tooth fractures in the last six weeks than in the previous six years. And here's, here's what it says. I closed my Midtown practice uh, to all but dental emergencies in mid-March in line with the American Dental Association guidelines and state government mandate. Almost immediately, I noticed an uptick in phone calls, jaw pain, tooth sensitivity, achiness in the cheeks, migraines. Most of these patients I effectively treated via telemedicine. But when I reopened my practice, the fractures started coming in at least once a day, every single day that I've been in the office. On average, I'm seeing three to four. The bad days are six plus fractures. Uh, one, what's going on? One obvious answer is stress from COVID-induced nightmares to doom surfing to coronaphobia. It's no secret that pandemic-related anxiety is affecting our collective mental health. Then uh, she goes on to, to posit a, num a number of other potential reasons, including that people are sitting in awkward positions at home more. Um, I guess that the ergonomic possibilities that I guess leads to people clenching their teeth in, in uh, unpleasant ways and then a, a lack of sleep. People are, are describing restlessness, restlessness and insomnia, so they're grinding their teeth more at night. Uh, so they're, they're uh, bawling yeah, their fists, clenching run, jaws. Yeah. Uh, so on top of everything else, we've got, we've got a six t times higher than normal rate of tooth fractures. I mean, somebody has to mention it, right? Yeah, being being in quarantine sucks. It's uh, it really does. Yeah, it's like yeah. enough already. When is this ending? I know, I know. So uh, that was a happy story. What do we have for? Uh, isn't that weird? I think we have something actually funny for this. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, let's see. Uh, isn't that weird? We got a very important story about a man who's really speaking truth to power. I love this guy. Yeah, he's great. We should have him on the show. I want to have him on the show and penis statue, wooden wooden penis statue guy on the show. So uh, reading at UPI, uh, watch Nebraska man asked city council to rename. You know what? Let's just play it. I don't want to say I'll set it up. Get his name. At least. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so this is a guy named Ander Christensen, 27, whose father, Roy Christensen, is a Lincoln city councilman. And he appeared before the governing body at a public meeting and encouraged the city to be a social leader in this country. And, and I'm not going to say uh, w what he's talking about. This uh, is, first, this we're is gonna Kentucky, show, right? Oh, Nebraska. Right, I'm Nebraska, sorry. yeah. Mm -hmm. I promise I won't take up too much of your time here. My name is <laughs> Andrew awesome. Christensen. Uh, I live at 1212 Twin Ridge Road. Lincoln has the opportunity to be a social leader in this country. <laughs> we have been casually ignoring a problem that has gotten so out of control that our children are throwing around names and words without even understanding their true meaning and treating things as, as though they're normal. I go into nice family restaurants and I see people throwing this name around and pretending as though everything is just fine. I'm talking about boneless chicken wings. <laughs> I propose that we as a city remove the, excuse me, I'm trying to. <laughs> I propose that we as a city remove the name boneless wings from our menus and from our hearts. These are our reasons why. Number one, nothing about boneless chicken wings actually come from the wing of a chicken. We would be disgusted if a butcher was mislabeling their cuts of meats, but then we go around and pretending as though the breast of the chicken is its wing. Number two, boneless chicken wings are just chicken tenders, which are already boneless. 
I don't go to and order boneless tacos. I don't go and order boneless club sandwiches. I don't ask for boneless auto repair. It's just what's expected. And then number three, we need to raise our children better. Our children are raised being afraid of having bones attached to their meat. That's where meat comes from. It grows on bones. Grows we need to bones. teach them that the wing of a chicken is from a chicken and it's delicious. <laughs> I propose that we rename boneless wings in the city of Lincoln. We can call them buffalo style chicken tenders. We can call them wet tenders. We can call them saucy nugs or trash. We can take these steps and show the country that where we stand and that we understand that we've been living a lie for far too long <laughs> and we know it because we feel it in our bones. Thank you. Thank you. Oh my God, if that guy was running for president, I would vote for him. I know. I was a little disappointed because I, I think I thought he was being more serious than he was. No, but I mean, I, but I, I love the, the, the turning and asking for uh, respectful silence. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was, what do really you think his motive was? I do want to have him on the show now. I don't know. I mean, his father being on the city council, uh, maybe he yeah. was just trying to inject some levity into the situation. Yeah. But whatever it is, it's funny. It's funny, and I, he probably yeah. got he probably got a lot of a lot of shit for that. I would think. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a bad. They aren't chicken wings. That's true. Boneless chicken wings. They're not that. And I've never wanted to eat anything that was called boneless anything. I like boneless tacos. I like that idea. <laughs> or boneless auto repair. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, I, as someone I, who, who, as a as a young person, I used to have to cover town meetings and municipal, uh, like alderman meetings and things like that, which are always, it's like a level of boredom that is like almost criminal. Uh, right. And the people who actually have to go to those things, I they, they should. Many of them probably need to have medical treatment for having suffered such extreme boredom. I, right. it, so it's so great that somebody somewhere struck a blow Spice against it, yeah. what those what those meetings usually are. I wonder um, how bad the teeth grinding is at those meetings. <laughs> yeah, it's probably pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> so that was good. Yeah. So let's there. I think we should talk about two different things. Uh, maybe, let's talk about the, the, the aforementioned um, bombshell story about Trump and the military. Yeah. And then we should talk about Assange. And uh, what's interesting is for me, that contrast is pretty uh, representative of the problem that we were referring to earlier, which is the boy who cried wolf in that. I think the military story, it's important and there's interesting stuff in there, but it's like the resistance never gets angry over the stuff it should get angry over. And it yeah. should be angry that Donald Trump's administration is going after Assange in a way that Obama, who is not a huge Assange fan, didn't do. Right. And it's just so weird and frustrating that I'm not even talking about leftists. I'm talking about liberals who are very much in support of free speech or ostensibly are. And the number of people who are talking about his personality or how un, un, um, un, unappealing he is as a person, as if that's at all relevant to this. But right. again, if you care about rule of law and the free press, what is it? Democracy dies in darkness, as The Washington Post says. It is unbelievable that people are so silent about this. So and we're going to talk about that with our guests later on. But let's start with the um, the military stuff, which you actually wrote about, Matt. Yeah. So there was a big story that came out probably a week ago from when this this broadcast uh, is going to be released. It was on uh, September 3rd by Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor in chief of Atlantic Magazine. He's a charter member of what I like to call the Scarlet Letter Club, which is uh, the the reporters who screwed up both the WMD and the Russia, Russia Gate stories. But doesn't Scarlet Letter suggest some kind of public shaming? 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm using I use that term ironically because he doesn't oh, have one. Got it. Like, yeah, okay. He, I just he, wanted to make sure. That, yeah. He got he got he got the WMD story uh, completely wrong. He he was one of the he wrote a story about uh, the, the the concept that Israel could be imminently attacked by Saddam Hussein. That was it was a big big deal in the run up to the WMD thing, and like all those people, he kind of failed upward. Uh, yeah. He became the the uh, the editor in chief of Atlantic. So he's, he's got a pretty powerful position, and he, and he he is doing this story that, to me, somehow inexplicably became the story in the in the country for four or five days, and is still kind of on the front burner right now, which is about remarks that Trump allegedly made uh, on a trip to France in 2018, where he allegedly said he didn't want to go to an American military uh, cemetery uh, because. It's full of losers, uh, and uh, and anybody who gets uh, who gets shot in a war is a sucker. Uh, there was another quote in there allegedly about um, where he asked who were the good guys in World War One again. Uh, why and not a I, bad question, by the yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. Mean it that way. Yeah. It wasn't why? exactly an anti-war uh, question, which it could be. Right. Right. Uh, then there's an additional part in there where apparently after after um, John McCain died, Trump said, I'm not going to go to that loser's funeral. And this is all treated as though it were a huge controversy when Trump is on the record as already having called John McCain a loser. Right. He's yeah, said he this, said this. Uh, he said it in video. He said it in print. He said it everywhere. And then what happens constantly with these stories and it's i almost be i'm almost beginning to wonder whether they do this on purpose like they rush them into print and they and they leave lots of details in there that they they assert things that they can't possibly know for sure are true and a lot of the a lot of the sort of peripheral parts of these stories fall apart quickly after they're published and in this case you know, in the lead of the story, he said that Trump had canceled his trip officially because of weather and because the helicopter couldn't land. And Goldberg flatly says that that's not true. Neither story was true, he says. Uh, but then it turns out that, you know, the on the record witnesses, including John Bolton, who is no friend of Trump's, said the opposite, that that was actually the reason why, the official reason why they didn't land. And of course, both things can be true. Trump could absolutely have said those things about soldiers and the, the weather could have been an issue. But because right. they but because they got something seemingly wrong or there's, or there's something in doubt, it all starts to fall apart. And very quickly with these stories, they, it turns into a referendum on, on the on the press outlet rather than on Trump. And also this story is just kind of stupid to me. I, it's just not compared to lots of other things that are going on, like the coronavirus thing or the Assange trial, as you mentioned. Yeah. I get why people would be turned, why journalists would want to do this story. I mean, I think if anyone would, Yeah. but the, the importance that, that gets attached to it is, is just kind of mind boggling. In addition to the sloppiness, that's what the, it's, it's the sloppiness. It's the, uh, the, Sourcing, it's uh, 99% of these sources, these stories, it feels like to me, are anonymously sourced, right? And then there's this new trip yeah. that they've come up with, with that Glenn Greenwald wrote about as well this weekend, where somebody does a story about Trump and then another outlet says the story, oh, we've confirmed the story. 
right. when actually what's actually happening a lot of a lot of the times is that the sources in the first story are now talking to another news outlet and so you're basically just hearing the same unconfirmed story and right. but we're calling it confirming and it's not confirming right no it's just uh, a feedback it's like a feedback loop of yeah exactly you're confirming that somebody said it but you're not said confirming it, right, that it's right. true right? <laughs> right so like with and they did that trick with Remember the Manu Raju story where they said that Trump had foreknowledge of the WikiLeaks dump and it turned out that the that CNN got the dates wrong by 10 days. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that was in a similar situation where the CBS said, oh, we, we've confirmed that story. But actually what was happening was the same people were talking to, to CBS. So this, I don't know, it, it was it was pitched everywhere as a bombshell and... Um, you know, it's just not. I don't know. What's your thought on it? And that also happened, by the way, with the Bernie bro narrative where a bunch of places like said something was toxic. And it turned out the three examples they gave were um, one was a parody account. One was a woman and one kind of was a you could maybe describe as a, as as toxic. Like he said, don't vote with your vagina or something. But all of those things were about a trend. And again, one of the other ones was a woman who called um, her senator a piece of shit for endorsing Hillary. Um, but all these articles just linked to each other. And, and, and don't forget the, 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 the other instance of the, the famous uh, conversation that Bernie allegedly had with Elizabeth War right. uh, Warren. And remember that CNN was protesting, but this is a confirmed story. Right. Four, there were four sources. Yeah, exactly. And it, and it turns out that there, there, weren't, there, weren't, there weren't four sources. There were four people. I mean, yes, there were four sources. But, but those they weren't sources witnesses. All, they weren't witnesses. They were, no. they were all people who had basically heard the story from the same place. Right. And uh, there are two, two things about this that are like kind of subtle is that in the in the old days, I hate to be the one of these this back in the back in the old days, but the, yeah. the reason this didn't happen back in the 70s, 80s and 90s is that news outlets back then were trying to beat each other constantly. Right. And so if somebody put out a story that was like not confirmed, right, like what the the thing you were trying to do is it was advance the story. You you wouldn't go out and say, oh, we've confirmed what CNN said, right? Because what's the value in that? You know, right. congratulations. You were actually ho kind of hoping that they screwed it up. <laughs> you know, right? So you could uh, do it. I mean, not, you weren't hoping that, but but if if that turned out to be the case, you were you were glad to report that too. You know, mm, uh, yes. And and now that's now that's not the case. And now it feels much more like there's. Uh, a sort of a network consensus of, uh, yeah, or, yeah like like-minded outlets so i do think there's the potential though first of all i have to admit some of this made me laugh not intentionally it's just like he, he's so i cannot believe he said this stuff it's so inappropriate but i do have to say that um the the mccarthy basically you know mccarthy lost his credibility during the red scare um as an individual the red scare didn't lose its its power but he kind of his downfall was when he accused the army of being communist and i do think that there's always interesting there's a lot of tension that um when you have politicians taking on the army or in this case like being disrespectful towards the army because trump does really play up the commander-in-chief role Mm -hmm. Um, and even though he ran on being kind of an isolationist, he obviously there's, there's nothing, there's no conflict between that and being pro-military. Um, and this, I, I, I wonder how much people who like him care about this. Obviously the people who hate him are totally scandalized by this. Um, and it's exactly the norm, um, disruption that they can't stand. But he's, 
he's gone here so many times before in the past, whether it's with the human con story, you know, the McCain thing in the past, obviously he didn't serve. And then of course, as the story progresses, which he always does. And, and this is, this is another reason why I, I think if you don't have a a story, that's a direct hit on him, you gotta be really careful because what what ends up happening is he ends up spinning it and advantage. Yeah, now people accuse him of being of having a problem with the military. He he comes out and he says, "Yeah, I've got a problem with the military leaders because they're so addicted to their wars that just keep the weapons companies happy." Right. And you know, woke Trump, Chomsky yeah, exactly. Trump. Exactly. Yeah, Chomsky Trump. And and these stories always end. His his strategy is just to, is to keep them alive as long as possible right. until people forget what the original point was. And then you know what I'm saying. It's frustrating. Like bombshells, these bombshell stories. There have been so many of them in the in the last four years, and so many of them. You know, we're going to look back and say, "Wow, we actually thought that was a big story." And it was funny during the RNC when um, Eric, I believe it was, um, the lighter-haired one, said something about how his dad had had uh, had set up, created peace in the Middle East, um, and ended wars. And Rachel Maddow did a little fact check on that and act well, actually that. And it was interesting because she's someone who always says that Trump is like letting dictators do their thing, not being as much, you know, not being a statesman. And then she was like, actually, Trump increased the military personnel. It's like, wait, I th- do you is that good or bad? Right. Yeah, I know. And it, it speaks to their inability to have any principles right now that aren't based around Trump. Trump's position or and or Russia is the biggest threat ever. And uh, and we should be hard on our enemies in a way that we actually didn't want Obama to be. And actually, we praised Obama for being not that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is what we've been talking about for almost the entire time we've been doing this show is the the strategy that the Democrats bring to their messaging is almost entirely based on Trump. And they orient themselves on issues based on wherever Trump is, and they react to it, as opposed to having a coherent set of values that they that they would be promoting all the time. I mean, I went back and I found tweets from people who were upset uh, that Bernie Sanders was talking about the number of people who were who didn't have access to prescription drugs. Uh, this is back in January of 2017. There, you know, people were there was there were tweets saying. You know, with the bombshell about the P tape, this is what Bernie Sanders oh, is talking that. about. That you know, yeah. I mean? like that—that's what this atmosphere has wrought. Is this sense of oh my god, this is the important thing right now, and if you're not talking about it, you're like you're a hater, or you're a fellow traveler, or whatever it is. And it's so bad, yeah, you're right, yeah, and it and it's so ironic because those are the things that people actually care about. Exactly. The one, the, the base who stays home, and the reconvertible Trump. Obama to Trump voters, you think they are going to care about Russia stuff or about uh, someone actually speaking to their needs? Right. Or an MLK bus that, you know, or whatever, or whatever it is. Oh, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you said bus. That would be cool. Right, an bus, MLK yeah, bus, yeah, but no yeah. bus. Yeah. Yeah. I, it would be really funny if Donald Trump was like re- recited the poem like Dulce Decorum Est, which is one of my favorite poems. It's a great will, one. It's great. By, by mm-hmm. Wilfred Owen. He should mm-hmm. just like recite that given his I, I love the idea that when he asked who were the winners of, the, of World War One were and that he was trying to <laughs> he was trying to underscore the, you know, the folly of war and how all these men died for for not just so we could have another great world war afterwards. That's right. Um, well, so as a segue into 
what they are talking about versus what they're not talking about. And, you know, our our guest this week is the director of a movie, uh, The War on Journalism, which is about the Assange case with Assange's hearing this week. And this is an issue that we haven't talked about a lot lately, but it is a big deal. And it's something that I think the, the Democrats could have made some hay about if they had if they had decided to have a spine on this issue, but because they spent, well, there's a lot of reasons, right? They, they spent years obsessing over Assange's role in the 2016 election, which has made him sort of persona non grata for that entire hashtag resistance audience. But this has been going on for, for so long now. And uh, the same people who were making public service announcements in defense of Chelsea Manning a, a million years ago and Assange. Um, a lot of them have kind of left the scene. Of course, some of them haven't, you know, they, they, they raised money for Chelsea when she was sent back to jail. But this Assange case has just been buried in the American media. No one's really covering it. And it's a, it's a, it's a major story. Should we just sort of briefly yeah, get but, into yeah. what the case is? So most people think that this is a case about hacking. If you ask the average MSNBC viewer, what they'll tell you is that he's being charged with trying with helping Chelsea Manning hack intelligence information. Um, that's not true. There is one count of the 18 counts that he's charged with that involves the his theoretical his, his agreement to theoretically uh, help her get past um, a, a hash right so that she could disguise her identity as she was as she was downloading information but right. it seems never to have actually provided that service and but any either way right this was not she she had access to this information anyway she, she did. just wanted to protect her identity um which is a reasonable thing and i think isn't like that's something journalists are are encouraged to do right protect their sources yeah like it's a bit of a gray area, right? If you're, like if you had a, a, a source who says something like, can you help me uh, find a lawyer who, you know, can help me get out of the country after I do this? Or, you know, like they, 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 they might ask you for all kinds of advice to help them get out of the situation that they're, that they're in. And you, you will certainly help the person, encourage, uh, encourage the person to disguise their identity, to communicate with you in ways that the their bosses won't know about, right? So that's pretty standard to to ask a source to or to to encourage them to keep their identity secret. Now, there's it, it, obviously it gets into a little bit of a gray area when you're starting to talk about cracking a hash, right? For for getting into access to government information, but even that I think is is a pretty ambiguous case, and it's it doesn't seem to have ever happened. And it was a long time ago and, you know, it's a minor issue. Yeah. More, and no one would actually justify like 175 years of prison for that. Right. For something that, that, yeah. that for conspiracy to do something that didn't right. happen. Blah, Can blah. I play really just momentary, uh, like terrible devil's advocate? Sure. I would never make this point in seriousness, but I could see how assuming that that even happened and we don't know it did. Right. But I could see you could charge if you could prove Here's my fake lawyer hat. If you could prove that, but for this discuss, but for this cra hash cracking, Ma uh, Manning wouldn't have done that because she would have risked, she would have felt too exposed and too at risk. Then it is kind of like you're helping them do it. 
but that's actually not but, that's but we not do that so all technically the time. right yeah so forget like we, that let's cut I that mean, out of it i think people will have different opinions yeah. about this i know how glenn feels about glenn feels this is totally greenwald feels this is totally like normal journalistic activity yeah. to help the person disguise their identity right. i think it's whatever he compared it to telling a, a source to call you back on a on a signal exactly phone instead of an open line yeah right so Okay, that happens. But that's only one of the counts. The rest of the counts are all about issues that are basically fundamental to to the job of covering uh, national security issues. It's the, the crime is uh, soliciting and receiving national defense information. So just the mere act of not, it's not even publishing, but just seeing right. information that you're not supposed to see technically, right? Is, is what the felony is here. And, you're, and they're, they're charging potentially 10 years for each count. So this is a massive, massive penalty that any person now who would be looking at classified information or talking to a leaker would now be risking that if uh, he were to lose this case. And he's, look, it's, it's already been established that they can make your life so miserable just for even doing this you know, without even ever having to prove it in the court of law or get past it. We, we, we talked to John Kuriaku uh, yeah. last year, right? So they've shown that they're, they have no hesitancy about putting somebody in jail under the Espionage Act for talking to a reporter uh, or for, ha- for encouraging the communications between a leaker and a reporter. So people don't, they don't understand the, what this case is about. Like if, if you actually criminalized what they're talking about in this, in this case, you know, there's a significant percentage of people who've done this job who would have would be technically felons, and it would just be up to the government to decide which people we want to prosecute and which ones we don't. It's also just like zooming out a little bit. It's so absurd and frightening that in the Kiriakou case, for instance, there one person punished over the um, CIA torture story was the whistleblower or the leaker, as they call him. But even if it was a leaker, like that's the one person who who gets in trouble, who faces any consequences. And in this story, and we should probably talk a little bit about what um, Assange uh, helped expose, the people who've gotten in trouble, despite basically like war crimes, um, the people who've gotten in trouble are the people who helped highlight or shed light or expose these war crimes, not the people who committed them or ordered them or condoned them. Right. And also, it's, it's. I think it's. Uh, we talked about this with Kiriakou. You, you, illegalities can't be classified, right? right? Like if 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 you have somebody who's committing war crimes, if if and and one of the things that WikiLeaks showed was, for instance, we were firing on people who were wounded, or be or, or we fired on people who were trying to help wounded people. Uh, we Including fired two on reporters, people. right? Ironically, I mean, it's yeah. kind of meta. Two right. Reuters reporters. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't claim the, you know, the, you have to preserve the blanket of national security uh, when what you're really talking about is is videos of helicopter pilots shooting people who've already been shot and are crawling on the ground or whatever it is. I mean, these are this is really hardcore stuff, and uh, WikiLeaks has broken a lot of these stories. I mean, it's not traditional journalism. I have a, I have a bit of an issue with some of the ways they do things because they don't provide any context at all. So sometimes, you know, that information, you should be careful about how you put certain things out. But look, they've, they've broken more big stories than probably all the major investigative reporters in the, in 
the Western world combined. And uh, they clearly are viewed as a threat and they're using obvious extrajudicial judicial authoritarian techniques to bully him. I mean, look at the, what's striking about the film that we're, we're the, that we're seeing are the old pictures of Assange that aren't even that old. How he looks now compared to how he looked then. I mean, it's terrifying. He's lived like a hundred hundred lives since then. So. Yeah. And now he's so he's going through his extradition hearing now. You know, this this case will have pretty serious ramifications for for a lot of people going forward. But yeah. Yeah. And uh, so first he was kind of accused of being like anti-American or, or you know, uh, putting the troops at risk. Then he was ac- uh, accused, of, not formally accused of these things, but that's what people kind of hated about him. Then uh, it was about him helping Trump uh, in 2016. So people blame him for getting Trump elected because WikiLeaks released uh, John Podesta's emails, which, by the way, this is my favorite part of that story. As Aaron Mate had said on our show, he wasn't even hacked. He he clicked on something or he gave his password after uh, someone we don't know asked for a password. We don't know who that person is. And then John Podesta emailed like his cybersecurity guy and said, should I click on this? And instead of saying, absolutely do not, he was like, absolutely do, (laughs) which is so amazing. And he clicked on it. And that's how we got all the the WikiLeaks, uh, the Podesta files. But this this uh, count, you know, his what he's facing has nothing to do with 2016. Like not a single thing is related to that. People seem completely incapable of getting past that idea. Right. They're like, yeah, but he did. The, but that doesn't matter. Legal, this is about le- the law. Right. Right. They're, they're, if he gets convicted, this is going to be a precedent that's going to apply to everybody who's not Julian Assange right. going yeah. forward. It doesn't matter. Right. So. Yeah. And. And they, they've done, a, I think, a fantastic job in the media in the, uh, in the last four years of wiring people to not think about the big picture with this case. Because it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't matter who Assange is or what you think right. about him, his personal life or whatever it is. And, you know, he could be a mass murderer, honestly. He, he could be. Yeah, he could be all kinds of things. Uh, and it still wouldn't matter. It's still first. He, he doesn't have the right to murder you. I mean, you see there, you, you see. <laughs> we almost uh, made it. I know, we almost made it. We're shifting that Overton window on necrophilia, though. But he, he really could be a murderer and, and be locked up forever in jail, but not persecuted, prosecuted for the stuff that he did, allegedly. And if this is all about Trump, why don't they do their normal, stupid, reactive thing where now that Trump doesn't like him or Pompeo doesn't like him and Pompeo has said very threatening things about him, why aren't they applying their stupid whatever Trump says? We say the opposite. These people should be in the streets marching for Assange. Uh, it, yeah. And especially since this is for all the people who say that Donald Trump is the sworn enemy of the free press. Yes. And yeah. He's a, an authoritarian. This is actually among the more overtly authoritarian things yeah. that he's done, uh, and the, you know, the we're going to hear from uh, from Juan about some of the things, some of the ways that uh, they've dealt with Assange with his extradition and being denied access to his lawyer, yeah. and you know he's lost thirty pounds and um, CIA uh, working with contractors in the in the Ecuadorian embassy to to, to spy on him yeah, and to Spanish and to, contractors who tried to take out his kids 
um, diapers to do an analysis, a DNA analysis on them. Although you can't do that with feces, but they thought that they would. It was such bad. It was so messed up that the that the contracting company that did this, that like set put in the cameras and spied on him and his visitors and lawyers, one of them like came forward about it. Right. Right. Yeah, and they were listening into his discussions with his attorney, which is another whole universe of of topics that I that drives me crazy that pe- people don't talk about, which is this intersection of national security uh, techniques and American domestic criminal law, right? So what they'll do is they'll they'll use all the expanded powers they have for a national security thing, like you can spy on people overseas, you can listen to their phone calls, you can do whatever you want. And you get all this information and then you bring the person back to be prosecuted under American criminal law. And even though you've done all these things that should invalidate that prosecution, like you can't listen to somebody's conversation with their lawyers. They throw the case out in, in, in right. the United States. But if you if if it's under the blanket of a national security case, they do it all the time. They, 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 they move in and out of where what the law allows whenever it's one of these these cases that you know, it goes back and forth between a, a criminal case and, a, and, a, and an intelligence case. And so, yeah, they've abused their powers. And this is and, and people have been completely silent about it, even though it, it's something they really could get on Trump about. But they don't. I know. And again, Obama, we love Obama. They love Obama because he's a constitute. Right. He respects the Constitution and he wouldn't go after Assange because of these issues. Right. Oh, I mean, I would say that Obama did some other things that were pretty un- unconstitutional. No, like I know. Yeah, yeah. Of course he did. But I'm yeah. saying the people who defend Obama, I'm right. not saying therefore Obama is the best. I'm actually saying if Obama is this defender of the Constitution, which all of his supporters claim he is. Right. Right. Then they should be pointing to this as an ex- yet another example of Trump going too far or ignoring the precedent of other presidents or this is not normal or this is an attack on the basic institutions and um, of our society. Uh, again, it's just like a Pompeo is a bad guy. They're so mad at Pompeo. This is so funny. They're really mad at Pompeo for addressing the RNC from Jerusalem. And who gives a shit? Like, I know. Who cares? First of all, I don't care. Second of all, you honestly think that that's going to uh, like be good, good, active, good, um, like pro- anti-Trump propaganda. Like you think there's someone sitting at home who's like, I don't know, Biden or Trump. Oh, wow. Pompeo. Uh oh. Oh, wow. The Hatch Act. Forget about it. I'm, I'm Biden all the way. It is so stupid. And this is actually something that could excite people, make them, you know, you could rally people around. Watch, watch what's going to happen, though. Trump is going to turn around. He's going to pardon Ed Snowden. Right. I hope he does. Yeah. And 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 he's going to win over all, all sorts of people for being, a, you know, the, the traitor to the intelligence establishment, the, glo- the global intelligence establishment who who sets the truth teller free, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, he's, you know, he's, they're still pursuing the Assange case. So, and we're actually talking with filmmaker Juan Passarelli, who made a great film about this yeah, and the, the war, war on, on journalism. journalism. And uh, has been, he's currently in London trying to, to the extent anyone can, we haven't even talked about this, to the extent anyone can, trying to observe via video link the, the trial. But let's, uh, let's, let's talk to our director and see what he has to say about this, this story. Why don't we just dive in just quickly and we'll walk backwards to get into your background and the movie a little bit. But just to start, you're you're in London, you're covering 
the Assange extradition hearing. How does that work? And how many people are they allowing to have access to the to like a link that you can actually see what's going on? Well, so I've been following this story for a very long time. So I've been um, for months, I've been emailing the courts to to figure out how it was going to be. It was only in the last couple of weeks that they started replying um, uh, with how it was going to work with the whole COVID situation, um, which we were all worried it was going to work out for the worst, right? Uh, especially with such an important case, probably the, the most in- important case in our lifetime concerning the freedom of the press and, and freedom of speech. Um, so um, I sent in my my journalist's credentials and eventually got passed on to somebody that uh, sent me a link. Uh, there are 10 places for journalists inside court. I'm not entirely sure if they are predetermined or chosen by the court. I'm hoping that that is not the case because that is very scary to think about. Um, who get who? Who do they choose? You know, that's a that's a ethical conundrum right there. Normally, it's first come first serve for court cases. You just it's it's totally random when you if they have to put you in a gallery or right, it would yeah, be odd for I, them to choose. Yeah, I, I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, uh, I have haven't really had time to investigate that much into it because just covering the case is a full time thing, and we're doing live streams and and recordings and live tweeting and all that. But there's 10 people, that 10 journalists that can go in. They don't go into the main gallery. They go into a courtroom with a TV, which is basically what I have in a little office. There are eight places for um, observers uh, from the public. Um, these observers, I found out today, were, are put in another room with another TV. Um, so the access to the gallery, I think, is just... Uh, reserved for a few family members and the lawyers, as far as I can tell. Except um, I found from found out from Rebecca Vincent from Reporters Without Borders that, are, that there are some VIP seats which appear to mostly be empty. Uh, and we're not entirely sure who the VIP people are. So, so what's, what's gone on in the hearing so far? Uh, we're recording this, I think, on the third day. I mean, it's it's all kind of meshed into one day. Um, so I'm sorry if uh, I go back and forth a little bit. I'll try to be as uh, concise and uh, just explain the narrative of it. Well, I mean, we could back up to how you became involved in this case. And I want to ask you about the oh, judge, yeah. but maybe it makes more sense to go from the beginning. How you got involved in this story? How I got involved, I mean, this is pure luck. I came to the UK um, to study television journalism because I was in, uh, in advertising uh, back in Guatemala. And I understood after a couple of years of doing that, that there was a lot of power in communication and I could move a lot of people, uh, you know, swathes of people to buy a certain product if I did the correct strategy of communication. Then after a while, this became really boring and it was actually more stressful than working as a journalist. Can you believe that? Uh, so I decided to, to, to just do something that was, was actually good for the world in terms of communication. If I had the skills to communicate, let's, let's uh, learn how to investigate. What, what are the tools you need to, to, to become an investigative journalist and uh, make films, which is something that I always wanted to do. So I came to the UK to do that. 
I met Gavin McFadden at the Center for Investigative Journalism, and he was basically kind of WikiLeaks' dad. Um, he passed away in 2016. Um, and in the CIJ, I met Sarah Harrison, who you probably know. Uh, she's, the per she's the person who saved Snowden. And I met Joseph Farrell, who's the WikiLeaks ambassador. Um, they knew that I was making films. And in October 2020, 2010, I was invited to film kind of fly in the wall documentary style the uh, weeks prior to the release of, of the Iraq war logs. And I just, I just knew that this was historical. And I kind of gained their trust and access to, to continue doing that. So I've been filming them ever since. Yeah, you have a lot of back footage in, in the war and journalism going spanning back all the way to the beginning of the, the WikiLeaks yeah. story. I don't even uh, know how many hours. <laughs> yeah. Got to ask this question because so many people make this about his personality. Um, anything you want to share about him? Uh, he's, I mean, the reason that um, uh, people think that he has a horrible personality is because there's been, um, you know, the propaganda apparatus of five different countries for the, span, for the span of 10 years, uh, trying to, to defame him, to, to, uh, to create this monster in the news. And that's, that's kind of the picture that a lot of people get because they don't have the amount of time that, uh, you know, people who research this stuff have to, to actually, and, you know, I've, I, I consider him a mate. He's, he's a good guy. He's fun to hang around with. You know, there's never a, dry moments because he's extremely intelligent and contrary to the belief that uh, he is careless i think that he is uh he's a uh, one of the most principled uh, man there is and definitely the most courageous man i know and i think that, that that his values and his courage is what has actually landed him where he is because he decided to always publish rather than, uh, you know, keep on publishing the truth and give people the ability to educate themselves and, and to, to be able to know what the representatives are doing in their name. So you, you describe this as the most important free speech case in, in our lifetime. Could you, uh, for people who don't know what the issues are in his indictment, uh, you know, it's an 18-count indictment, there's two different issues here, right? One of them involves the, the cracking the hash, and then the other one is all about receiving defense information. But can you can you outline for people what the case is 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 about? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that uh, if you watch my movie, I think the case is very simple, uh, and I tried to kind of remove all the noise that you get from the media and kind of just lay it out, and it, that's why I call it the war on journalism. Um, I think this is a case of a publisher who acquired very important material that uh, showed war crimes, uh, showed torture, showed, showed corruption, widespread corruption on the biggest uh, uh, levels of government. And, um, and that created a repercussion that uh, in the Obama administration created a grand jury um, which decided to never uh, indict him and then in the Trump administration, uh, he feels a bit more of a threat to the press. Uh, they indicted him in, on espionage charges. 
So basically, this is the first time in history that the United States has charged a journalist for publishing material with the Espionage Act. They are considering a journalist an enemy spy. This is, this is really disturbing. And the implications are that journalism as we know it, if this case is, is prosecuted and, and he is... Uh, he, he is sentenced, uh, uh, and the, the implication is that anyone who deals with classified information of any kind is, is committing a crime. Um, today, we heard from uh, um, Trevor Tim uh, from the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Uh, he suggested that it was so grave that um, it could even span... For those who don't know who Trevor Tim is, he's, he's an expert in, in, um, in the First Amendment. He was a lawyer and now he runs, uh, he's an advocate for freedom of the press. He's, he says that uh, basically any journalist that willingly or unwillingly or, or, or unknowingly, unknowingly receives classified information would be a, a, a committing a crime. And that also may span out to any reader who receives a news uh, with classified information. So the repercussions are humongous uh, concerning the First Amendment. I mean, they've had cases that have flirted with these ideas before, right, in the past. Obviously, right. we had the Pentagon Papers case a million years ago. There were, then there was, in the Obama administration, there were multiple cases involving the Espionage Act. They, uh, they did target, a, uh, oddly enough, a Fox News reporter in a story about North Korea. Uh, and then there was... The Kiriakou case, which is where they were charging espionage for one person talking to, an, to a journalist, but they've never actually gone here and gone after the the publisher, right? Is that that's what's unique about this case? Where that's it, correct. Okay. That's correct. I mean, the uh, First Amendment protects the speech, right? The, the the ability to to communicate, and that's what's so special about the the, press, the First Amendment. And I think the founding fathers of America were very wise to to make that choice and it wasn't even i mean a lot of people like to de debate whether or not assange is a journalist but a lot of these things that doesn't matter right well it doesn't matter in terms of the first amendment at all yeah, yeah. so i mean i don't know if that's just trying people are just trying to distract from it i mean we like the reason i asked you about the personality was of course it shouldn't matter i just mm. wanted to ask you and because i know that people are talking about that so i wanted to just see if there was anything and you already shared but um it's kind of embarrassing that's that the it's so much part of the conversation what this person is like on an individual level as if that's at all relevant yeah you could say it's embarrassing but i i think it's a it's a i mean the the propaganda apparatuses of right. these countries are are very effective effective and sophisticated and they span throughout the whole government you know this this is our all government departments uh, including the intelligence agencies little by little feeding information about uh, what they want the narrative to be. And, and, and they've managed to do that very successfully. You know, there's uh, the United States, the United Kingdom, Freed uh, Sweden, Ecuador, and Australia. I mean, Australia had a whole government uh, investigation on WikiLeaks. And uh, this this uh, has for for 10 years, you can you can make a demon out of anybody. I mean, I guess I just meant it's, it's weird that people talk about 
his what he's like personally when that shouldn't be relevant to a free speech case. But you're right that, of course, it's very effective. And that's why they spend so much time doing it. And there was a part in your documentary. I don't remember who said it, but someone pointed out that um, Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, the fact that they that Nixon had tried to raided his therapist's office kind of canceled that case. Yes. Um, and that that should given that the CIA spied on Assange, that should have tainted this case. But it hasn't. Um, I love talking about that case because I'm actually involved in it. I have a document uh, of an email sent from the Venetian Hotel uh, owned by Sheldon Adelson right. uh, from the uh, head of the security company that was uh, in charge of protecting the embassy, a Spanish firm called UC Global. The email says that I am on a special target list and I should be investigated. So at certain points, I, I had to even stop bringing my mobile phone in to the embassy. I had a little embassy phone, which was a little burner with a SIM that I never used, no contacts, you know, except maybe one or two that I knew that I need to, needed to have. So like, yeah, I'm coming back. Or, right. you know. So you get contacted by someone from the security firm. They email you. Um, no, there's this is how it starts. Um, Rafael Correa needed uh, protection for him and his family. He, got, he hires this, uh, this company. And, and then suddenly Julian Assange comes into into play and the Ecuadorian embassy in London did not have any security. I mean, I don't think there's many embassies that do. Obviously, the Americans do. And this um, is the president, just pe so people know, Correa oh, is the president of uh, Ecuador okay, at the cool. time. Yeah. Yeah. So Julian Assange goes and, and asks for asylum. Um, then there's suddenly uh, a need for security. The Ecuadorians were faced with a problem that they, they couldn't send their own security because the United Kingdom would not give them the visas that they needed because they are intelligence agents, you know? Um, so only diplomats get the visas. So, so now we have a situation where they needed to hire an external company. They hire the, this company that was protecting the family of Correa and, uh, and they become the, the contractor. Uh, David Morales, the owner, uh, flies to Las Vegas in 2016 um, to Las Vegas Convention Center and uh, he meets um, Sheldon Adelson's head of bodyguards called Sohar Lahav and apparently they get it off um, and that's where the whole story uh, comes into play. After this faith fateful trip, he turns, he, um, he comes back to the... Um, to, to Spain and he tells his security guards that they're now working in the big big leagues. Right. And when they ask what the big leagues are, he says, we're working for the dark side. Um, we know all this because the people who worked on that, on the security firm, it became whistleblowers, funnily enough, on, a, on the WikiLeaks case, because they knew that uh, the, the firm was breaking the law and they, they felt when Julian Assange was arrested that they needed to do something. So um, they whistle, uh, they blew the whistle on what they was blew happening. The whistle. Yeah, actually, there's a bit in my film where uh, I interview the lawyer. He receives a random oh, yeah. phone call uh, of someone saying, you don't know who I am, but I know who you are. You've been one of my targets for years. I've listened to your conversations. I have all your, all your personal information. I have your ID. I have been recording you. I've been following you. I mean, this company was was following uh, and, and spying also on Rafael Correa, on Julius Assange's 
uh, lawyer. There was a break-in in the, in the lawyer's office. There was also a, a diplomat in Ecuador who uh, weirdly got uh, robbed with some very important papers relating with Assange, uh, of, uh, relating to the case of Assange. Um, all sorts of weird things, right? Um, diapers, know, diapers, we, right? They tried to take out diapers. Oh yeah, there's the story of uh, them targeting um, children of Julian Assange. Uh, they suspected that Julian's it was Julian's child, but they didn't know. Julian was very private, and uh, Stella Morris, his partner, is uh, extremely private. So they make a great couple in that sense, in um, many, many other senses actually. But um, yeah, so they one of the guards says to her outside the embassy in a place where they can't, the cameras can't see them, please don't bring the baby again because we're being asked to steal a diaper to check for DNA. They later found out that uh, they couldn't uh, take DNA from a diaper. So they were trying to steal the, you know, the little- Pacifier. Pacifier, yeah, that's the, that's the word. Um, there's also documents that uh, suggest plans of uh, uh, kidnapping, leaving the door open of the embassy and having somebody kidnap Julian Assange and even poison him, which is extremely, I mean, for, I always try to, to tell this story. Um, people don't, don't get how real this is uh, because it sounds like a movie. And I can relate to that because my family, I've been telling them for years, even though I'm not, I'm not WikiLeaks, I've been kind of really very close to WikiLeaks for such a long time that I that I know that you know this is bugged and my computer is being you know I'm so and I've been telling my parents you know I can't tell you everything I do and you know I'm being and they I guess they said yeah 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 and then suddenly uh, last year uh, a journalist in Italy published an article about this story about the, the document I was telling you earlier where my name is mentioned and um, and I send it to my parents and I look, I'm on the papers and they freak out. You know, suddenly this becomes real. The CIA is after Juan Paula. I've been telling you for years that this is a big, you know, the, the embassy is the most surveilled place in the entire planet for right. seven years, you know? Um, so it's hard for people to understand, but the, U the USA, the US government, the CIA uh, uses the same tactics that they so much criticize uh, Russia and their enemies, uh, like in North Korea, uh, for using, you know, like like trying to poison people. This is their reality, and this is the, this is why WikiLeaks is so important. What about what he's had to deal with since he's been arrested? Uh, you talk in your film about his uh, inability to have full access to his lawyers, that he lost fifteen kilos. Yeah, you know, that, that he exhibits the quote, I think it's Nils Melzer talk, talking about how he exhibits all the symptoms of somebody who's been uh, psychologically tortured. You know, what what was the routine after he went to to Belmarsh? Did, was he allowed to talk to his attorneys and what kind of shape is he in right now? How much time you have. <laughs> <laughs> and Nils Melzer is the U.N. rapporteur on torture, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So just concerning the U.N., the UN has made two very in, in important findings. One is that twice they have stated uh, the, the um, 
uh, group, uh, the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which is the the most renowned uh, uh, and respected uh, group of in, in Earth concerning uh, arbitrary detention, has stated that uh, he Julian Assange has been arbitrarily detained for ten years, and that he should be immediately released and compensated. These rules usually. Uh, would apply, you, this is a binding treaty, you know, the UK is part of the UN and this is binding. Um, but because it's the UK, they say they, they can ignore it. You know, if it was Ecuador or Venezuela, then, you know, the UN is right and you have to obey. This is, this is the double standard that, that we live in constantly, you know, this is not new. Um, and then the other finding is the, is the torture finding, which uh, Niels Melser uh, went uh, to see him at the beginning of his stay in Belmarsh prison, which is a supermax prison uh, filled with terrorists and murderers and pedophiles and an intellectual who is on remand with no charges in the UK. And he clearly exhibited um, someone, uh, all the symptoms of, uh, of uh, psychological torture. Uh, Niels Melser describes that psychological torture is by no means tortured light. That's his exact words. All torture is geared to affect the mind. And uh, they are torturing him to make an example out of him. Uh, how are they doing that? By putting him in isolation, by not letting anybody talk to him for months on end. You know, after 15 days of solitary confinement, the UN uh, rules that it is torture, and he's been he's been in solitary confinement pretty much the whole time he's been there. Uh, first, because of actual measures from the prison, and now because of COVID, he has 23 and a half hours a day in his cell. That could drive anybody insane, but Julian is extremely resilient. I, I, you know, I've I've seen him for years. I've always been extremely awed at how how his mind works in terms of coping with with stress. I have never envied him in terms of the position that he's in because I would first of all. Just the fame. Nobody, everybody wants to be famous until you really know somebody that's very famous. It's not good. And 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 secondly, it's. Uh, I mean, he's he's been persecuted by the most powerful organization in the world for ten years. This is, you know, this is this is just grounds enough to be uh, psychologically uh, tortured in 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 the positions that he's been, you know. So this is not only from the time that he's been in Belmarsh. This is also from the time that he's been kept on the embassy and he wasn't allowed to go out because he was going to be arrested. Um, not even to go to the hospital, even though he has uh, certain medical conditions that require him to go to hospital. Um, Doctors uh, for Assange, believe it or not, there is an organization called Doctors for Assange. Um, has uh, stated that his uh, his health is is so poor that uh, you know he could die in prison, and they recommended uh, that the the UK take him to a university hospital, which I have seen in hospital. I've seen prisoners in hospitals. Uh, I recently saw one. I had to visit a hospital. I, I saw a guy in handcuffs and two policemen. You know this is normal practice, but Julian Assange gets put in a, a 
uh, ward that is called the health ward, and it's it's a worse punishment to be in there. To the point that when he was in there, he was being punished so bad that um, the inmates petitioned the government three times to please let him out of the conditions that he was in, because uh, you know it was it was so so unbelievably uh, torturous. You, they they know how these things are, and it is the prisoners out of everybody that actually was uh, able to get him out of uh, of this hole for a while. Why do you think the Trump administration was has been more aggressive uh, about this case than the Obama administration was? Like they they, they the Obama administration clearly went through the motions of thinking about prosecuting, but they never actually did it. There was a grand jury. Um, the grand jury refused to indict, if I remember correctly. But Trump's statements about WikiLeaks have been kind of all over the map. He's said things like, I love yeah. WikiLeaks. He's intimated publicly that he he kind of enjoyed what, what uh, WikiLeaks did during 2016 and 17. But then they've been incredibly aggressive about this case. What... Is there, do you have any idea or uh, any information about what what prompted that? Well, I think that Trump has always had a very bad relationship with the media. Um, he he knows how to use the media very well, but when he's at the spotlight and he's you know he's criticized, he really doesn't like it. And this this has been brought up several times during the the case, the, the hearing, including from a, a political scientist that spoke today. And he said that Trump's personality is one of the reasons why this is a political prosecution, apart from the fact that it's espionage, right? What more, how more political can you get than, than espionage charges? And by the way, it's illegal uh, in the treaty between the United States and, and Britain in the extradition treaty to, to extradite somebody under political charges. So I don't even, I, I, the CPS is making a fool out of the, uh, the uh, British judicial system, and and just uh, the, by the way, the CPS is the it's Crown Prosecution Korea. Service, mm -hmm. the Queen's Prosecution Service, but which, by the way, has a good track record of uh, respecting the rule of law. But this is a really bad taint in in its in its record. And going back to Trump, um, way back uh, uh, in 2010. Or 2011, when the, the first leaks came out, he he said that Julian Assange deserved death penalty. So this is not this is not a new position for Trump. Uh, I think he is also extremely opportunistic, uh, and um, and decided to play along with uh, leaks that were favorable to him at the time. Uh, WikiLeaks. I have to emphasize very clearly that WikiLeaks did not publish these documents to make Trump win the elections. The documents were of clear, they showed clear evidence of massive corruption within the DNC that made several of the highest officials uh, quit the DNC. They showed corruption within the Clinton Foundation. They were of public concern. And if there was ever a time to leak those documents was in an election where people have to decide who's going to rule them. And if this information is, 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 I mean, if you have that information, you're, you're willing to make a more informed decision as to who, who you want 
the, the, the country's leaders to be. Uh, obviously, if WikiLeaks had information on Trump, I'm sure that they would have uh, released it as well, right? It was just that the information there was was that. WikiLeaks doesn't decide what leaks it gets, it gets the leaks. Um, so after, the, after 2016 passed, um, WikiLeaks got another leak um, in 2017 uh, about the CIA's uh, uh, tools for espionage on, uh, uh, you know, what, what different programs they used. The, 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 the leaks are called Vault 7. There's about seven volumes of them, if I'm not mistaken. And they include stuff like uh, how can they hack into phones, televisions, uh, um, computers, uh, and even cars, which is quite amazing because cars nowadays are run by computers and theoretically they could push the brakes or pr press the accelerator on a car, as far as I understand, which means that that's another way that they could potentially carry out an assassination um, that is, you know, would never be cleared. I'm talking about a potential hypothetical here, but this is, this is the type of tools they had. Uh, but then Mike Pompeo came into office right after the leaks or during the leaks. And he made that, I, I would say, kind of honoring uh, speech, dedicating the first public address as a CIA, CIA uh, leader to, to, uh, to a publisher, right? To Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, mm -hmm. uh, where he said... WikiLeaks is a non-state hostile intelligence agency. And that was actually the framework they then used to bring these charges later on. Right. Can you just clarify, a lot of people are saying that he was trying to like uh, escape from justice, um, but he, he, he wanted to go, he was willing to go to Sweden, right? He just wanted certain yes. guarantees that he wouldn't be extradited. Can you expand on that? I mean, the whole reason why Ecuador gave him um, asylum was not because of trying to, you know, Ecuador would have never granted asylum on, on the grounds that he was trying to escape rape allegations in Sweden. I don't want to get into the Swedish case because it was open and shut three times because there was no investigation and it was, and it has been shown that it was a clear violation of his rights uh, um, the Crown Prosecution Service again delayed the the uh, Swedish prosecution from coming over. There's a famous email saying, "Don't you get cold feet on us?" He always wanted to to be interviewed by Sweden, and and he did eventually get interviewed by Sweden years after. The reason that Julian Assange got asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy was because of the risk of political pr prosecution by the United States where there was, at that time, the risk of the death penalty. And in my film, I showed Rafael Correa, the president of Ecuador, actually saying that. In February, there was a story that came out in February that the, that the Trump administration had offered to pardon Julian Assange in, re, in exchange for what they would say, they said was clearing Russia of the interference. I always wondered what, exactly what that story was about. Was, was there ever any uh, communication between the Trump administration and, and Assange about anything? And, and a secondary question, just to confirm, he was never interviewed by any of the investigators like Robert Mueller or any of those people. Concerning this uh, 
uh, this Trump thing. I'm I'm not in. I've heard the story. I, I I don't I don't know the ins and outs. As far as I know, Jennifer Robinson has confirmed that somebody uh, who claimed to to be uh, uh, representing Trump came to the embassy and and and, and offered this. And that's that's what I've read from the media. I've never really. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about that. Now, what I do know is that WikiLeaks never discloses its, discloses its sources. And it's this, these principles and these values that uh, even if that was the case, would land Assange in, in where he is, right? Because he would not ever disclose a source. In fact, when he talks about Chelsea Manning, even though Chelsea Manning confessed to releasing those documents, he talks about the alleged whistleblower, mm. Chelsea Manning. Um, and that is with any whistle, whistleblower that alleges is alleged to have leaked uh, to WikiLeaks. And in fact, there has never been a case of a whistleblower that was found out to be a, a whistleblower of WikiLeaks because of WikiLeaks. Although I have to say, because I did hear Assange say several times that the information that came from the DNC was not given to WikiLeaks by a state actor. Right, that's what he's said. He, he, he's maintained that a couple of times publicly, hasn't he? Yes. And yet he wasn't interviewed, which makes no sense by all the people who were claimed to be concerned with what happened. Yeah, no, none of none of the Russia investigations ever ever tried to talk to him, which I always thought was really really odd. What about the the press interest in this in London right now? It, it feels like the only people covering it here are kind of connected to the alternative press. But I imagine that there's a lot of interest in this case internationally. Can you can you speak to what if there's any difference between the way this case is being represented in the States versus everywhere else? Um, there has been a pickup. Um, I think that um, the main newspapers in the US have uh, ma made editorials in, 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 in support of Assange concerning this case, saying that this would uh, this case would definitely threat for the press freedoms. Um, the New York Times, The Guardian, The Guardian editor, uh, the ex-Guardian editor, Alan Rusbridger has written several times. Um, the Daily Mail has, uh, has been covering it, um, especially the Mail on Sunday. There's been some more coverage now from the London Times. Uh, so it's picking up, it is picking up, but it is not a rolling mainstream media story, which you would think that would be because it concerns them specifically, right? And I, I have a theory about that. I, I, I was on a, I, I, I wasn't on a panel, but I was, I was doing the tech behind the panel uh, where uh, one, one Guardian journalist, I believe it was, or one of the people that investigated the war logs, uh, I can't remember exactly from what newspaper, question was put to him, what, because, this whole idea of will the president be set or is already being set, right? What happens, what happens if a major newspaper right now gets a leak the size of the Snowden or the Chelsea Manning leaks? Um, what would they do? Would they publish? In the worst situation, they would, in the worst, worst situation, they would not publish. In the best situation, they publish and maybe go to prison, right? Uh, because the president is already being set. Uh, or they would aim to create a coalition uh, in between media to create a little bit of more political power. But it's, it's still 
something that that they would really have to consider. And I feel when they when they asked that question to the to the journalists, he said, "Yes, we would publish." And I feel like they still feel protected by their mainstream status uh, and feel a little bit different than WikiLeaks, which is kind of like a small organization. And Julian Assange, who has been the lightning rod of WikiLeaks for 10 years. But I think that sense of security is, is awfully wrong and they should be scared um, Shitless. Sorry for. That's all right. You're allowed. Because yeah. I am. I am. And I think all journalists that handle classified information should be. Well, actually, all journalists that handle classified information are very worried about this, uh, as, as, as far as I can see. But there seems to be less and less of those and more of the people that just report on whatever the government source is, right? Right. Which is still classified information, by the way, m much of the time. But it's a government source that gave it to me and it's OK it's for some reason. You know? And just so people understand, if he's convicted on this, this, this would set a precedent where it's not just about publishing. It's also just about even seeing the information. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, it's obtaining, yeah. having. And, and I mean, once you've seen the information, you have it. Right. 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 It's in your mind. And then publishing. Um, so, so the, the the crime can happen before the point of even making an editorial decision about it, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And what happens if you suddenly receive a brown envelope and it yeah. contains something that that you you didn't know was classified? I mean that that happens. I mean that uh, the the whole Dropbox thing has come into the to, to the trial lately as. Uh, because the most wanted list is also one of the allegations that they were in, inv inviting uh, sources into, into uh, uh, trying to leak. This is something that all newspapers have nowadays. Mm -hmm. All major newspapers have it nowadays. And the Freedom of the Press Foundation has facilitated. I think they, uh, that um, uh, Mr. Tim said something like uh, 80 Newspapers have the secure drop, open source secure drop that uh, they created. And uh, many of these newspapers have even advertised, paid advertising to say to sources, to potential sources, please leak. I mean, this is, this is not a, this is not a WikiLeaks thing. And the most wanted list wasn't a, 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 a document created by WikiLeaks. It was, it was a wiki. A wiki is something that anybody can contribute to. So it was activists, you know, just people in their living rooms, scholars, you name it. People could just put there what they thought would be interesting secrets to, to have. So uh, to call that uh, uh, an in like a inviting leaks, which is not illegal because it's protected under the First Amendment, then then. Uh, then I mean, what's the charge, right? It's, it's there's no charge. There there can't be any charge because it's not illegal. Are you going to make another film about this part of the story, or are you? At um, this point? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that once the, the this hearing ends in in about three weeks, probably a little bit longer, um, I will make an updated version of this film. I see. This film is a campaign film. I don't believe in in unbiased reporting. Um, 
I actually think that it is very nice that in the US, um, you can have a television channel telling you what their politics are, because then you know what exactly where they stand. Um, you know, that if you're watching Fox News, you're going to get certain type of information. If you're watching uh, Breitbart or CNN, you're getting it different or MSNBC or whatever. In, the, in Britain, uh, there's a law forbid, forbidding that. And what, what has been created is this monster called the BBC, which uh, allegedly reports unbiasedly, but it's really a, a, a campaign megaphone for, for government, right? And um, so, yes, I will make another film about this as a campaign film for a cause that I, I feel truly worthy. Uh, I am also working on a project that I can't disclose yet, um, but it is a film and there's a long-term project about the entirety of what I've shot and, you know, just just make the whole story, I, you know, People think that they've seen the whole story of Weeklix. I don't think that they have seen the whole story of Weeklix. This would be like a ten Netflix part, you know, type of thing. Yeah, that would be that would be an interesting dramatic series for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. it could. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I was yeah. thinking documentary because that's what I do. But right. uh, yeah, but definitely it could be a nice dramatic thing. Either either one. Just want to know um, if you could talk about the judge. Okay, so. Declassified UK, which is a brilliant uh, outlet, uh, relatively new. It covers the uh, military industrial complex of, of the United, United Kingdom and has recently gotten the honor of being blacklisted by the Ministry of Defense in the UK for reporting accurately on what they are doing in Yemen and other covert wars and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, etc. They uh, made a series of investigations concerning the, the the judge, which oversees this this um, this case. She actually made several important decisions when she was presiding the case, uh, and then decided to uh, not recuse herself, but just withdraw from presiding it. But she still oversees it. Uh, and now we have a judge called Vanessa Baratzer, which we who do, we don't even we don't know anything about. Uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But so Lady Arbuthnot, uh, she made several important rulings in in Assange's case, and declassified um, reports that there are serious conflicts of interest um, in her family. Her husband has worked. Uh, for the security uh, forces and the private intelligence companies and um, uh, is was part of uh, an organization, kind of a think tank uh, where, which was putting out, uh, you know, arrest Assange material when she was making these uh, decisions. Her son owns a financial company that owns a firm called Darktrace. Uh, which is comprised of former MI5 and GCHQ and MI6 officials. Uh, so you can see, you know, clear conflicts of uh, interest. That's her son and her husband. Um, now, she's never accused herself, which, according to legal experts, is extremely rare. It's just really, you know, if there's 
if there's any suggestion of, of conflict of interest, uh, judges would recuse herself, but she decided to stay on and supervise the case. Vanessa Breitz, or the, the, the preceding judge, she's a, she's a ghost in the internet. You, you can't really find anything apart from a couple of cases. You can find a lot of her uh, concerning Assange uh, and another high-profile case, but um, you can't even find her previous rulings as a magistrate, which should be public uh, information. And, and uh, Declassified UK made a freedom of information request to find out what her rulings were, and it was denied. So what they did was uh, go to some lawyer's office where they pay for a service where they can see what the rulings are. And they found out that she had a 96% extradition rate to countries that included Turkey. <laughs> so... You know, this is the type of person that we're dealing with. The extradition equivalent of a hanging judge, basically. Yeah. 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 She seems to be to to let the prosecution go uh, a lot more. You know, she 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 gets the defense on a tight leash, and she 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 lets off a lot uh, from the prosecution, including a, a very rude interruption by by the uh, by the prosecutor today. Uh, let, let me just tell you a little bit about the prosecution because it's been incredible to see them these last two, two days. I mean, yesterday uh, they uh, they uh, managed to get this uh, uh, witness, expert witness in journalism, who was talking about how how it would you know the repercussions of this case would be to journalism, um, and I think he wasn't prepared well um, and. Uh, this this uh, prosecutor Lewis managed to get him answering yes or no questions to a hypothetical, not the real case. We were discussing a hypothetical case of uh, would a journalist would it be okay for a journalist to publish a name of someone uh, who could be at risk from that information? Just to make it clear, the information that we're talking about uh, is cables that were published first by a third party, unredacted, and then WikiLeaks published later, um, for reasons that are too long for me to explain right now. But um, there has been a, a task force of uh, uh, 110 people in the Pentagon um, that was dedicated to investigating if there was uh, anyone who was hurt. And under oath, the Pentagon stated in the Chelsea Manning case that no, they didn't find anybody who was hurt for any of these publications. So constructing this fabricated narrative of, uh, so this, this guy was just answering yes or no, yes or no to these questions and basically turned it all around. Thankfully today for the defense, both, uh, both expert witnesses were fantastic. They did not, they, they, they did not uh, fall for this yes or no thing or hypothetical, uh, you know, what if a journalist did this or not. They went straight to the case that concerns them. And, and really, they, it did, today was a victory for the defense. All right. Well, terrific. Well, Juan, thank yeah, you thank so you much so for much, coming yeah. on. And uh, look forward to seeing what happens with yeah. this case. And um, hope to talk to you again soon. Thank yeah, you thank very you much, so much for having me. So that was great. Um, really interesting discussion. Really cool. We got to talk to Juan. 
Um, yeah, it sounds like he's he's sort of been embedded with uh, WikiLeaks yeah. for quite a long time. So that's interesting. It's a really great film, The War in Journalism. Um, you can find Juan on Twitter at J Passarelli. That's J J L Passarelli. So J L P A S S A R E L L I. And then you can find the the documentary there or on YouTube. But because he's like a safety, I don't even understand this because, but because he's kind of a WikiLeaks type guy, there's a way to watch it like um, uncensored and um, not in a proprietary platform. So you can find that there. It sounds very specialized. I don't yeah. know, but uh, but there's a, a way to do it. I guess maybe you like even you won't even know that you're watching it. Right. No, it was really interesting. Uh, the, again, the case is it's so bizarre. It has like elements of the Chicago Seven trial from the late '60s, where yeah. it's it's gotten so far away from what a real legal proceeding would be like that it's turned into this weird circus that I'm. I'm sure is going to look a lot stranger and to future generations when they look back at it. So, yeah. well, one quick housekeeping note that I, that uh, I noticed after we did our, our last segment that was interesting, the, we were talking about the Atlantic story and about Trump and about the coronavirus and Charles Pierce, the writer uh, tweeted something very interesting uh, just now, which we forgot to mention. Uh, Dan, can you put up that last tweet I just sent? So here's Char Charlie Pierce writing, Bob Woodward knew the truth behind the administration's deadly bungling and oh, worse, shit. and saved it for his book, which will be released to wild acclaim and huge profits after nearly 200,000 Americans have died. It's kind of a good point. I didn't even yeah. think of that. There really isn't a great reason not to, not to break that story at the time. I mean, it Obviously, it would help book sales later, but is that the only scoop in the book? I, you know, I haven't read. You want to cause a panic, Matt? Right. Woodward didn't want to cause a panic. That is really gross, actually. Wow. It's, it's an interesting dilemma. See, uh, too bad WikiLeaks didn't get to it. Could have leaked right, it. Right. Right. They could have leaked it. Right. Exactly. Anyway. Interesting, point. interesting stuff. We'll find out in a couple of weeks what's going to yeah. happen with that. Well, we we pretty much know what's going to happen with that extradition hearing. Really. Uh, Oh, yeah, we should predict what's going to happen. I mean, he's going to be extradited. That's I'm, so bad. I'm going to guess. And uh, then what? You think he'll be you think he'll die in uh, in prison? Yeah, I can't. I mean, I can't see them. What are they going to going to do? Give him time no. served and let him play volleyball for the rest oh, of the right. Life? Yeah, no, I don't it's think so. so. Yeah. So you do think he will? I think I mean, I'm going to guess that they're going to give him a pretty heavy sentence. I don't know, but. We'll see. Don't you feel so powerless? Yeah, of course. It's so scary. It's just odd because uh, w once upon a time, people would have cared more about this. Actually, yeah. not even that long ago, it feels like. But they, you know, we've, we're in a different time now. So. Well, that was really great. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you very much. And we'll see you again next week. <laughs>